Indeed, as we prayed to look forward to a new week with the blessing of God that's been set before us, what a joyous thing it is to be a Christian and to be able to call upon Him as our Father and to appreciate His bountiful blessings of protection and cares that surround us day by day. We concluded last Lord's Day evening a, I suppose it was, a 12-week series of lessons on the book of 2 Samuel. And as our Bible bowlers participated in that event yesterday, it set the stage for us to move to a different topic tonight than 2 Samuel. We will look tonight in the sixth chapter of the gospel according to Matthew and look at the model prayer as our Savior uttered those rather famous words, those which you and I considered just a few moments earlier in the reading tonight. Might we notice just a few thoughts as we begin our lesson considering this model prayer? May I introduce it in the following way, if indeed I might? How important you and I can easily appreciate the topic and subject of New Testament prayer to be. In fact, one could even make quick note about how often the matter of prayer occurs even in the Old Testament. Is it not the case that we should readily appreciate, as individuals that walk upon this majestic footstool of the Lord, that we are dependent and reliant upon one far greater and far higher than we. It seems so natural in a sense, doesn't it, to beseech the aid and to lavish praises upon the very one who made and created all of us, the vastest of this universe, the majesty of the human frame. Was it not the psalmist who said, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. To quote Psalm 139, verse 14. Is it not thus fair to say, at least briefly, prayer is an important topic. We would do well to learn as much about it as we can and implement those in our daily walk of life of prayer. Is it not easy enough to also say, our Savior had prayer as an important element in his life, as well as did, of course, the Apostle Paul and so many others in the New Testament. And these individuals were inspired. How much more might you and I need to be thoroughly acquainted with prayer given that we are not inspired as they were? Jesus in Mark 1.35, in fact, says he rose up early and went out a great while before day and prayed. I've listed only one example of many in his life and also that of Paul. Might we thus appreciate, even at the outset of our lesson, the value of prayer, and to try and strive to make that a part of our life as each day passes. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17, this rather brief text is also given, pray without ceasing. Is it not that an admonition from heaven that you and I should each be frequent individuals given to prayer? I've also given Luke 18, verse 1. In the very outset of that chapter, perhaps a verse that's rather famous and familiar to many of us, men ought always to pray and not to faint. Sometimes perhaps you and I find ourselves either having fainted or on the verge of it, so overwhelmed by despair or discouragement or the greatness of some task that is now set before us, maybe we're too often those that forget to pray as we should. Men ought always to pray. Why, Luke? and not to faint. Tonight, as we look at the model prayer, reminding ourselves of some of the aspects of prayer, some of the attitudes to be found within it, maybe you and I can be reinvigorated in regard to our own prayer life 
the life of prayer that would lead to greater sustenance and faith, to greater recognition of what God would have prayer to be in my life and also in yours. One of the questions that sometimes might well be asked by a person perhaps who is a novice in the faith, perhaps a person who's newly been baptized or a new Christian, and maybe even in fairness, some of us who are older still might from time to time ask, how should I pray? For what things can I include in prayer? Is there certain things, certain ideas that I should utilize? How should I pray? Especially those men who lead in public prayer. Sometimes when they're first called upon the very first time. Gentlemen, do you remember the first time you were asked to lead a public prayer? Did some of the things cross through your mind? How do I do this? Maybe your knees behind that lectern were shaking. Maybe no one ever knew that but you. It is a rather interesting responsibility that rests upon those, and perhaps for any of us, man or woman, we could ask, how can I pray and how should I pray? Tonight, let us revisit and listen to the words of our Lord as He addressed that very subject in light of what you and I have learned to call the model prayer. If you would, please turn to that sixth chapter of Matthew as we, over the next few moments tonight, Consider some of the features and aspects as it relates to this model prayer. And may I lead us through that discussion in the following way. Throughout His preaching ministry, our Savior taught many things that specifically relate to prayer. If you and I merely note some of the highlights of them, one of the most obvious occurs just before the text that you and I read a few moments earlier. In the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus had unfolded many aspects of religion that in one way or another touched the following idea. Religion, in whatever means it's done truthfully, must never be done merely for the audience of the human family. That is to say, one doesn't fast just so that others will note it. One doesn't give into that collection plate just so that others will know how much we give. And one doesn't pray just so that everyone can pat the back and laud the praises of how eloquent and beautiful that prayer is. The Savior pounded that point home in many ways, didn't He? In fact, notice if you would, verse number 5 of Matthew 6. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men... Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. When you and I thus pray publicly, it is not as though the person who's been asked to lead the prayer is specifically given the task and responsibility of making sure he is seen and heard. In fact, most of the men that I'm aware of that are called upon to lead public prayer wish that they could somehow do that so that not everyone is watching. They would prefer to do that in a simple way and in a fashion where they aren't necessarily seen but only heard. May we all appreciate that our prayers are not for the audience of everybody else specifically. It is true that man leading in a public prayer should strive to pray in such a fashion that others can say amen when that prayer is completed and can give a hearty recognition to the fullness and appropriateness of it. But his primary audience is God in heaven. And when each of us pray, is that not the truth? That we are praying, recognizing the great Father in heaven is hearing. 
He is the one whom we are praising. He is the one that we are exalting by virtue of the prayer. And it is his aid that we beseech for the differing characters and cares and concerns of our lifetime. But that's not the only thing our Savior taught with regard to this. Verse number 7. But when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Thus Jesus has taught, first, you don't pray just solely to be seen of men. Secondly, use not vain repetitions. No doubt many of us have often wondered, what exactly did the Savior mean? Is he saying that it's not appropriate to pray the same thing more than once? Is he saying that it's never a right thing to mention the same matter more than once in prayer? Obviously, that's not what the Savior was teaching. Did he not pray the same prayer three times in Gethsemane? Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Matthew 26, 39 to 42. Obviously, the Savior was not saying that the same thing cannot be prayed for. Is it not true that that adjective vain might be the key? To repeat something in prayer, in fact, in the Old Testament occurred, didn't it? But is it not fair to say if it's vain, that one's heart is not behind that which is being spoken? It is merely being uttered for the sake of having something perhaps to utter or to say. Maybe the essence of faith and belief in the God's capability of accomplishing it is not as full as it should be. At any rate, could we at least comment? Maybe as those who heard our Savior preach and teach suddenly had questions. What would count as a vain repetition? What does it mean then to be seen of men? It would easily be seen in verse number 8. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. It may be that others have asked you and me in times past, if God knows our needs and if he's aware of them prior to our asking of them, why then must we ask? Friend, it simply seems in the New Testament to be presented in language like this. When we utter a prayer to God, it's not that he didn't know it before we ask it. It is as much an aid to you and me in asking it as is the very element and character of lifting it and bringing it before Him. Because in asking it, we are casting the burden upon Him. We are laying the matter that's too great for us squarely and fully upon His shoulders. It is thus that in that prayer, we have a powerful attitude of reliance upon Him. And that thought, when it's so bountiful before us, helps us day by day to be better able to recognize that it is He who is able to answer, who is able to sustain, and who is able to provide the thing needed. To say all that is perhaps to say the disciples had questions about prayer. Perhaps due to the teachings of Jesus about vain repetitions, about the nature of not being seen, if you will, being the attitude in it. At any rate, if you'll notice interestingly, their questions resulted in them asking Jesus a question. I would ask you to hold your finger there and turn with me to Luke. And as we look interestingly at the 11th chapter of Luke, there is an interesting question that the disciples, at least one of them, ask of Jesus. And it came to pass, this is verse number 1 of Luke 11, 
And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of the disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. Jesus was praying. And obviously it was in some manner of a public place. The disciples not only witnessed, they heard that which the Savior was uttering. Following that, one of them asked a question. Lord, teach us to pray even as John taught his disciples. They were specifically interested in hearing his specific instructions in regard to prayer. It sounds to me as though you and I thus could find the very answer to our initial question, how should I pray? By noting the disciple on this occasion asked Jesus the same thing. How did the Lord answer that question? Did he ignore the question and provide no answer? Did he, in fact, pause and say, wait until a later time when that arrives as a specific sermon topic? In fact, beginning in Luke 11, verse 2, the matter recorded in the Gospel of Luke is the very thing that Matthew records as that model prayer. In other words, Jesus answered by saying the very thing that you and I uttered earlier. This is how Jesus said you need to pray. This is what the Lord required as He answered that disciple's question. How should we pray? Teach us to pray. Let's revisit then that model prayer and look more carefully at some of the features contained within it and some of the things that might well be said about it. As we move from this slide to the next one, one final thing worthy of comment. After this manner, therefore, pray ye. The Lord opened the discussion by making a rather powerful statement. After this there manner, therefore, pray ye. This was his instruction. This is what he said. He then gave what some have called the Lord's Prayer. It would seem far more appropriate to call it the model prayer. It was not as though Jesus physically at that time was praying this. He was giving it as instruction to that disciple who asked and to others who may have been in the opportune place of hearing. After this manner, therefore, pray ye. It's his instructions to those and you and I as well on how, in fact, we can go about prayer. Beginning in that prayer, again in Matthew chapter 6, verse number 9, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What element came first in this prayer as the Lord made it in its teaching? It was the exaltation and the praise of the very name of God, wasn't it? The first and foremost matter and element in the prayer was to direct the character of one's attention to the greatness of the one who is the audience of that prayer. And remarkable feature of it, isn't it? He didn't begin first by praying as he will later in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. The first and foremost matter was to praise the name of God and exalt His being. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The fascinating point again, isn't it, that this prayer is addressed to our Father. How often does the Bible portray to you and me the fact that God, like a loving Father, wishes to hear from His children and wishes to bless them in ways that would be for their benefit. On another occasion, later in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus even pointedly addressed fathers who were in the hearing and said, If your son asks a stone, will you give him a serpent? If he asks an egg, will you give him a rock? 
we all know no loving father would give to his child a snake when he's desiring something different. Certainly nothing that would harm him or her. On this occasion, our Father. Where is this Father? He's in heaven. Our Father, which art in heaven. It is true that God is omnipresent in the sense that no one is able anywhere to hide from Him. We even noted this morning that neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight. But all things are naked and open unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Hebrews 4.13 the fairness, though, to say is this, though His omnipresence is everywhere, His throne is in heaven. The absolute recognition of His throne and the place from which He reigns and rules is indeed in that beautiful and sublime place called heaven. Even the psalmist stated as much, didn't he, in Psalm 11, verse 4, the Lord's throne is in heaven. As we thus recognize His existence and ruling reign in heaven, Notice Jesus said that our prayer might well appreciate the fact that and be directed toward that way. But it is quickly followed by, Hallowed be thy name. Perhaps we can pause to note, the Lord, notice, didn't say that we are to verbatim quote this and never add or delete anything from it. This was the model that should serve as a template whereby you and I could also construct our prayers that would be appropriate, loving, and beautiful in a fascinating way. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That word hallow, as noted on the screen, simply means to set apart as sacred, to proclaim as holy, or perhaps finally to sanctify. God's name is a holy name, isn't it? Holy, hallowed, sanctified be thy name. It's a wonderful thing to begin a prayer and recognize at the very outset that the one to whom we're praying is far greater, far higher, and only He can provide justification, sanctification, and forgiveness through the nature of His Son. Jesus began this example prayer in that very way and went on quickly to note the tone of submission that that must demand of you and me. Isn't it the case that we live in a culture and in a world where that kind of idea at times certainly does seem foreign, doesn't it? Hallowed be thy name, recognizing there's one greater than I, human reason. And human intellect is not the final answer. In fact, almost anything. It is God's revelation and His will, and certainly hallowed be His name. In fact, as we turn back just a bit and think of the prayer that Daniel uttered in Daniel chapter 9, isn't it beautiful to hear again the submissive nature with which he began that prayer and the humble fashion in which all throughout it he practically fell prostrate before the throne of heaven and laid in a remarkable fashion his whole being open bare before the God of heaven. You see, God knows it all anyway. Hallowed be thy name. Of course, Jesus only started in that fashion and quickly moved in the following way. Thy kingdom come. Pausing at this point to appreciate, isn't it a beautiful and truly breathtaking thing to see? After exalting God's name and declaring it as hallowed or sacred or holy, the next element in the list, the next matter that arose in this prayer, thy kingdom come. At the time our Savior uttered or taught that part in that prayer, the kingdom had not come into its existence. 
And doesn't that, by the way, help us see very interestingly that that physical kingdom that was the core in the reign of David and Solomon and others in the Old Testament, that's not the thing of which the Lord was speaking. That kingdom had long since been in existence. The kingdom of which the Savior spoke was one which He was praying would yet be. Thy kingdom come. That was a very frequent part of the Lord's ministry, wasn't it? In Matthew 4, verse 17, earlier, in fact, two chapters earlier, he had said, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Meaning it was near, it was close, it wasn't far distant into the future. Although it was still future at that time. How thankful and how blessed you and I could certainly be to think often about the fact that that kingdom has now come. That's not left to our speculation any longer, is it? The thing there for which the Savior prayed later in the New Testament became a reality. For example, in Colossians 1 verse 13, as Paul addressed the church in Colossae, he specifically said of them that Christ had delivered them from the power of darkness and that they had been translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Could language be any clearer? That preposition in too describes a change of location, a change of environment, if you will, from one place, having been come out of it, and moved into yet another. Obviously, the Colossians had not been a member of that kingdom at one point, but they had been translated into it. The kingdom had become a reality. It had done so in the second chapter of Acts, hadn't it? To continue that thought then, it might be certainly fair to say, in regards to the Lord's teaching concerning that kingdom, the Bible has informed us it now has become a reality. And thus, that specific language in this model prayer would find no place in my prayer today and yours. We could not in faith pray for that kingdom still to come, for it's already here, isn't it? But could we pray for the sustenance and the growth and the edification and the expanding boundaries as new souls are added to it by nature of the Lord's blood? Certainly that would not be an inappropriate matter at all, would it? For after all, we are told in 2 Peter 3.18, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 3, we're reminded, as Paul complimented the Thessalonians, your faith groweth exceedingly. We certainly then could pray fervently and earnestly that the church and its boundaries would grow and that faith would nurture and would be admonished. But isn't it interesting to look further? The Lord went on to say, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. At this point, isn't it still beautiful to see God's name exalted, the character of the kingdom? Now he says, Thy will be done. Where yet has human petitions entered? They haven't. The focus is still on the will of heaven, the accomplishment of that which would be God's will. And so now, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. We are given information in the Holy Scriptures, aren't we, about that there was rebellion in heaven at one point. That rebellion is described in the very powerful language of the 12th chapter of Revelation. 
And in that chapter, we notice that apparently it was rather short-lived. God dealt with that, with that rebellion rather quickly and swiftly, so much so that it says that Satan was cast out. And in the casting out thereof and the character of what followed therefrom, may we never forget the fact that apparently there is no longer any such rebellion in heaven. God's will is done thoroughly, entirely, completely, and submissively. That helps us appreciate then that for the Savior to teach us to pray for God's will to be accomplished here in the same way it's accomplished there would mean an absolute submissiveness in all points to the will of God. Would it not be a wonderful thing to consider if all the human family would order their lives in such a way to bring about and accomplish the will of heaven just as surely as it is done there? That's a breathtaking thought, isn't it? That obviously necessarily has some implications for us. When I pray for God's will to be done here as completely as it is in heaven, that means that there's obligation for me that I need to so live and so conduct my life so that God's will can be thoroughly accomplished and that I can be a living instrument to bring about that will. Thus, to make that statement has pretty powerful ramifications for the one praying, doesn't it? It would do no good for me to make that statement in prayer if I am unwilling to be in my stubborn will so that I could be an instrument in the hand of a loving God to bring about His will. Thus, it's amazing to consider what that would mean for us when we thus pray that in a loving and submissive fashion. Jesus, however, still has much more for us to learn. I've listed on that screen some more things for your consideration. As the total accomplishment of God's will is that for which we pray, the submission of our will to His almost naturally leads to what comes next. Notice also this with me. Give us this day our daily bread. After exalting God's name, after the consideration of His will being done here in its totality, only now do we find a recognition of something that would relate directly to my physical character or to yours. First and foremost are matters spiritual in prayer. First and foremost are exalting the very one who makes all things possible. Now... Give us this day our daily bread. We are totally reliant upon the very one who makes these things possible. We must never allow ourselves to forget that. We are blessed to have jobs and to be able to earn a living, but ultimately we are but stewards of the things that he makes possible. And as stewards, we, if we are to be pleasing, must be found faithful. To quote 2 Corinthians 4, or 1 Corinthians 4, verse number 2. Perhaps one thought I listed there would be this. One of the matters we seem to see about the nature of God's provision is that even our daily food is due to His bountiful and powerful hand. In the second chapter of Genesis, I ask you to recall with me the statement of verse number 9. Adam and Eve at that point had not yet partaken of the forbidden fruit. As such, though, who was it that even then provided the nature of their daily provision of food? It is said there that God provided the trees of the garden for them to partake of. God made it possible. He made the things for which that could be a reality. 
Also, I've listed for us the 17th, chap the 17th verse of the opening chapter of James. A text rather familiar to us as we remember that every good and every perfect gift cometh down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. The impressive features then of God's provision perhaps lead us to think interestingly of God's faithfulness. If we are thus to be those who pray like that, give us this day our daily bread. It's always been a fascinating thing to observe. In essence, daily, that word occurs twice in that verse. Give us today the bread we need today. God didn't say there through the Savior to pray once a year for the food to last a year or to pray once a month for the food to last a month or even once a week to pray for the food that will last a week. You and I know that the human tendency, if that were the case, we'd soon think that we were able to do it. We'd forget about the nature of thanking God for it. And we'd soon be those who were rather unappreciative for it. But yet when we pray each day, God, thank you for today's food. Thank you so much for it. And we appreciate the provision of that blessing with such bounty. That's a helpful thing to ever keep us humble and to keep us realizing that it is indeed God that provides it. Some of the sweetest promises and most wonderful statements in all the Bible seem to relate directly to that thought. In Psalm 37, 25, I have been young and now I am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. David, are you thus saying that in all the years that you were able to live to that point, you never had seen one faithful to God? untaken care of. Perhaps also the Savior addressed that in the very chapter in which we're now studying. If we read interestingly in verses 24 to 34, we find Jesus teaching that God takes care of the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. And if that's true, won't He take care of you? Are you not much more worthy than they? Or much more valuable, the text says, than they? Oh, indeed we are, for you and I are immortal spirits. And as such, God's promise in verse number 33 is this. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things, what things, Matthew? Things like raiment and food and shelter, that God will provide if we will but put the kingdom first. That we can't misunderstand, can we? For that was the simplicity of the Savior's teaching. But let us also notice further in our study of the model prayer. That concludes verse number 11. And following that, we see very quickly in verse number 12. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The reference or the usage of that word debt is a rather simple idea in many ways. It simply refers to something that's owed, O-W-E-D. Notice again, if you would, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There are those to whom we owe something. And in regard to that owing, as others owe that also to us, might we appreciate that here there is a matter stated concerning forgiveness. Forgive us, he said, our debts. That is, what we have transgressed and that which we so sorely and desperately need in the same way that we forgive those who have trespassed against us. That is a rather sobering thought, wouldn't you say? 
to recognize the fact then that God's forgiveness of us extends, at least in a typical fashion, like our willingness to forgive those who trespass against us. If we're unwilling to extend forgiveness to those who've asked and requested it, to those who've besought our forgiveness for something they've done against us, the Lord will be unwilling to forgive us of our transgressions against His will. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus amplified that point. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It is thus a rather stark thought that when you and I are of sufficient spirit, that we're unwilling to forgive when someone has asked it of us. They come recognizing they've done something amiss, they've offended us, they have directly sinned, not only against God, but against us. They have besought our forgiveness and we're unwilling to give it. The text says God will not forgive us either. It is futile in that case for us to ask God to forgive us. Have you ever thought about that? It is futile if we are unwilling to forgive others of what they have trespassed against us when they've asked for that forgiveness. God will not answer our prayer wherein He will forgive us. There were three times in the Old Testament in the book of Jeremiah where that very idea took place. God specifically told Jeremiah, Don't you pray for the forgiveness of this people. For they, you see, have been unwilling to follow my will and bend their stubborn will to mine. That's found in Jeremiah chapters 7, 11, and 13, and 14. And in those instances, the thoughts are somewhat remarkable as we consider the conclusions that would be true for us even today. These issues perhaps lead us also to notice the closing matter in Matthew's account of this, of this model prayer. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We might be tempted to say, in what sense does that make any sense? Lead us not into temptation. God doesn't lead anyone into temptation, does He? It is said in James 1.13, in fact, in the very words that relate powerfully to that idea, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. And thus, in what sense did Matthew and did our Lord make that statement? Lead us not into temptation. May I submit to you, the following way of looking at that seems to harmonize so beautifully and in fact so well. Not only with this text, but also with others. Perhaps we can read it in the following way, Suffer us not to be led into temptation. God, we beseech you to be at our side. Help our eyes to be wide open so that we can see the crafty temptations that Satan is setting before us. And help us to be wise enough to seek that way of escape wherein we would not find ourselves succumbing to the power of that temptation. In language perhaps like that, we might notice Sometimes in the great wisdom and infinite wisdom of God, He deems it appropriate that our faith to be tested. After all, wasn't it true of Abraham? Abraham, take thine only son Isaac, go up to Mount Moriah, offer him as a sacrifice. He tested Abraham's faith. 
in the finality of that, we remember that Abraham's hand was stayed. He saw the ram in the thicket behind him, and that was a substitute in the sense of the time and the moment. In Hebrews 12, we also learn that God permits our faith to be tested. For only in that testing we learn in James 1, verses 2 to 4, it leads to experience and it leads to patience. And in that way, our faith is made stronger. We should appreciate then that at times when we pray to God for a stronger faith, that may well involve testing of that faith. And in that testing, we should be aware that that's the very crucible that shall lead to the finality of that strength and that increasing in our faith. The point of all of that perhaps would lead us to say this. Verse number 13 does make reference to deliver us from evil. In fact, the Greek language records it and identifies it as the evil one. There is a prime evil one. He has many servants and many messengers in this world, but there is one evil one. Satan himself, the devil, the diabolical demon, from Revelation 12, verses 9 and 10. That diabolical one is the chief of the prince of the demons, isn't he? He is the one described as the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2, verse 2. The very one who is the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. Indeed, inasmuch as he is that roaring lion that walks about seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5, 8, we should ever be aware from this verse of the great evil that he is. And to pray that God shall have a, help us to have the wisdom to see the things that He places before us so that we might have the strength to sidestep them, to find that way of escape from them so that we would not be given, in fact, to them. The latter part of verse number 13. Interestingly enough, inasmuch as it reads, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Fascinating it is that that's not in the oldest of the manuscripts that you and I have access to in the New Testament. And for that reason, versions like the American Standard will not include the latter part of verse 13. It's certainly fair to say that there is nothing inappropriate about the words that close verse 13. Closing that prayer with one final decree, Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. That closing word, Amen, is a word that's used throughout the New Testament and old alike. It seems to draw that prayer to a close with a calling of so be it, or let it be. And even in 1 Corinthians 14, 15, and 16, the realization that on that occasion, that when that prayer closes, all may be able to acclaim and to say, Amen. Our study of this model prayer this evening perhaps has led us to summarize some of the thoughts in words like this. As you and I can use this prayer, perhaps one final observation could be, note the brevity of it. Prayers are not always those that need to be extraordinarily lengthy. Sixty-nine words is all the length of this prayer. It can easily be read in well less than a minute. It can easily be, in fact, memorized and spoken, probably in far less than that. When we pray to God, the condition of the heart and the realization that God can and will hear and He can and will answer His faithful children. We must pray in believing. As we pray without wavering, according to James 1, might we remember that an unstable man will receive nothing from the Lord. That instability 
leads us to see that in faith, let's praise the name of God, exalt the power of His being, recognize and desire His will to be done here as thoroughly as in heaven. Ask Him for the daily needs of our life physically and appreciate the need for us to forgive others if we expect Him to forgive us. Finally, to petition and to recognize, in verse, as number verse 13 teaches us, the greatness of His name and the recognition of as Jesus himself stated it, of the greatness of God's power and glory. Tonight, as we've been encouraged in our own prayer life, may we leave with a greater invigoration in regard to our prayer and appreciate that the New Testament has so very much to share about the avenue of prayer, much of which we haven't been able to even touch on tonight. But as we close this lesson, we understand that there are some things that prayer cannot do. Prayer can't forgive sin. An alien sinner is not told anywhere in the Scriptures to pray for the forgiveness of sin. There are some things he or she must do to gain that forgiveness of sin, and prayer is not one of them. We're told that that person must hear the word of the Lord. That person must believe Jesus to be the Son of God. That person must repent of his or her sins. And that person must confess the name of Jesus as the Son of God. And that person must be baptized. Prayer is not a part of God's plan of salvation for the alien sinner. For that person who has fallen away, that person is told to pray that the prayer or that the sins could, would be forgiven and removed. Tonight, upon your repentance, we'd be happy then to pray on your behalf. But we need you to let us know what we might do on your behalf. We're going to stand in just a moment and sing a hymn of encouragement. If you have been encouraged tonight and need the prayers of brethren to be rededicated or strengthened, or if you need to, in fact, become a Christian for the first time, we'd be honored to help you in either way. Would you not let it be known, if you would, while together we stand and while we sing?